with Odysseus. One thing, one of the things that you can say about Odysseus and Homer in that was Odysseus was incredibly honest about his weakness. He basically said, everything in me wants to follow that voice. But there's another part of me that says, no, I don't want to go there because I know it's destruction. And so he was honest. I wish we in the church would be that honest in our prayer life and in our lives with others around us. To say, I know that my deepest desire is to honor the Lord and to obey him and to live for his glory. But there is a part of me that wants to run after that because it looks really good. And I have desires to do that. And that's why we have friends in the church and brothers and sisters in Christ. And we can be honest with them and say, everything in me wants to run that way. Help me not run that way. And we have a God who is seeking us to be incredibly honest. So instead of just white-knuckling it and looking away from sin, instead, why don't we be honest with God and say, God, everything in me wants to go the wrong way. Would you, by the power of your spirit, keep me from doing that? Isn't that a little different prayer? Isn't that an honest man's prayer? You know, um, R.C. Sproul, who's a professor and teacher and, and theologian, said, if you're on a diet and you are walking through the mall and there's a Baskin-Robbins and you walk by those 31 flavors and then you pause and you go back and you grab a big bowl of ice cream and you eat it and then a friend comes by who knows that you're on your diet and that you've obviously blown it and you're sitting there and they say, what are you doing? And you look up at them and say, I know I didn't want to do it, but Sproul says, yes, you did. Every bit of you wanted to eat that ice cream, and you acted on it. Own your stuff. In prayer, we're just owning our stuff. We're being honest before the Lord. In our confessions, we're just being honest with him, because guess what God knows about you? You know what he knows about you? Everything. So you might as well go ahead and be honest with him. Said, so I didn't want to look at her. Yes, you did. I, I didn't want to take that. Yes, you did. But Lord, I want to honor you too, and you know that's true, so would you help me in my confusion and in my tension in that? What we're going to talk about, and see, those are profound things. Those aren't just little things, are they? Well, what we're going to begin talking about today, and I haven't forgotten the prayers time. We're going to do that right before communion. I'm going to switch it around a little bit. What we're going to do today is begin looking at an absolutely profound book within the scriptures. One that shakes the tree and shakes the bush and asks all kinds of questions that it's not going to answer. And that book is Ecclesiastes. A book written by Solomon, son of David, who asked the Lord for wisdom and the Lord gave him wisdom. But Solomon, who went out and experienced every bit of life, we're going to look at and hear from him. And we're going to look at this book, and we are going to ask profound questions. Okay? What's going to happen over the next couple of months is not church light. Okay? So I'm going to, I'm going to push you a little bit. I'm going to prod a little bit. I'm not going to answer all the questions that get asked through this. But we're just going to stir around a little bit. We're going to probe and we're going to press. Because we need to go deeper than we normally do. Most of us are just happy to say, I just love Jesus. Isn't that enough? 
No, it's not enough just to say you love Jesus. You need to know why. You need to know who that Jesus is. You need to know what the alternatives are. You need to understand these things profoundly. Young people that are here, you're going to go off to college here in a few years. You're going to be exposed to PhD level teachers who will blow away your little felt Jesus board that says Jesus is just God and I love him. Well, why do you love him? There was a course at Rhodes College where a professor in the first semester at Rhodes College, it was a required course for all the students, and it was a biblical philosophy course. And she would ask at the beginning of the course, how many of you here today believe in Jesus Christ would say that you're a born-again Christian, and over three-quarters of the class would normally raise their hands? In December of that same semester, she would ask the same question, and less than a quarter of the students would raise their hands. What happened? They hadn't thought through the implications of their faith any more than a simple Sunday school lesson that talked about Noah and Goliath and Jesus a little bit. Folks, we need to grow up in the church. We need to think more profoundly. We need to understand things more profoundly for our own hearts and for those that we love around us because the world has incredible answers to questions that they're asking, but unless they're the answers that are found in the Bible, they're the wrong answers. And guess what we have through Christ in God's word? The right answers. So that's what we're going to look at. So we're going to begin this morning in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and we're going to look at the full chapter this morning. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already, it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things. Nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied to my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. And I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is God's word. May he add his blessing to the reading 
and to the hearing of it. Amen. As we begin, let me just define a few terms for you. We're going to use the term philosophy. Philosophy comes from two roots, philia, which means love, uh, and then sophia, which means wisdom. So philosophy is simply a love of wisdom. It's the study of wisdom. It's one who wants to learn and know about wisdom and wise things. We're going to use the word theology, coming from theos, God, logos, God's word, that understanding of God's word. Now, prior to the Enlightenment, philosophy uh, and theology were sisters. They were bedmates. They were together. Understanding philosophy could only be understood within a context of understanding God's wisdom. But now it seems that theology has fallen to the wayside, looked upon poorly, looked upon uh, as not much to think about. Now, there are still very profound thinkers who are Christians. Not too many years ago, the head uh, of the stated chair of the University of Michigan Department of Philosophy, the University of Notre Dame, uh, and, the, and of Yale, the top three philosophy schools in all of the world, were all Orthodox Christians, Evangelical Christians, because they understood something. The only way I can understand this world is to understand God, and I believe the God of the Bible and how he's presented. Isn't that amazing, at least for a season of time, that those three schools were run by evangelical Christian men? Profound. The two are not incongruent. You can fully understand who God is, and you can fully understand the things of this world and love wisdom, and they come together. And who is speaking to us this morning and who will be speaking to us through the course of, uh, of these next couple of months together will be the word koheleth. It, it's translated in your Bible either teacher or preacher. That's probably not the best translation of it. It is more an idea uh, of a convener or a seminar teacher. Uh, it is one who is lecturing. It is one, and especially in this model, uh, is using what would be the Socratic model. And the Socratic model is a model that basically asks a lot of questions. And it doesn't give you a lot of answers. So you may be a little frustrated because we're going to ask a lot of questions. I was taught, Bill, never shake a bush and allow too many snakes to come out that you can't squash their heads. Guess what? We're shaking a bush and they're going to go... Whew. And we're not going to stomp on all their heads. There's going to be homework for you. And that homework is for you to consider these things. These are important at every stage of your life. Now, I am profoundly indebted to C.S. Lewis in reading some of his essays uh, on these things. Indebted to Tim Keller. Indebted to John Piper. Men who are much more profoundly wise and smart than I am and eloquent in these things. And I would listen to them and read them and go, huh? And then what I, guess what I would do? I would listen and read them some more until my huh became a hmm. And so I'm going to try to out of my hmm uh, help you along. Um, so we're going to look at these things. And the first thing we're going to talk about uh, here in Ecclesiastes uh, is this sense that the, the convener, the teacher, is saying to us, I want to challenge you down to your very core. I'm going to ask even unpolite and rude questions. I'm going to press you to think more than you've thought before. So if you're coming to church today to just sort of turn your minds off, I am sorry. I'm going to ask you to flip that switch back on for a little bit. You can go home this afternoon and I think there's some football game on later. You can turn off your mind until halftime when Beyonce sings and you can turn it back on and decide whether or not she's lip syncing or not and then go back uh, to the game. I mean, we think about all kinds of stuff. 
But how much time do we really consider about the most important things? Contemplate this. What is the meaning of life? There's a light question. What is the meaning of your life? What is it all about? And the interesting thing about Ecclesiastes is the answer isn't found in Ecclesiastes. Tim Keller says Ecclesiastes really should be the first book of the Bible because it's the one that sets up all the profound questions and the other 65 books of the canon answer it. It's the one that says, are you going to find meaning in all of these things? Absolutely not. You will only find meaning in one who spoke into nothingness and created all things, Genesis. You are only going to find meaning in one who comes after him, Christ himself. So it all flows out of this. So we're going to begin to answer those, but we're going to reach to other texts to answer the questions that we come to. So there's a couple of things first. The prevailing question of Ecclesiastes, there's a lot of questions that it asks, but the prevailing question comes in verse 3. And verse 3 says this, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What does man gain? Or what does man profit? Or in some translations, what does it profit a man? Uh, in these things. And that word gain is a unique word. It's used 10 times within Ecclesiastes. Uh, and it's a word that is basically saying, what is the permanent value that is left over after you've accomplished everything else? What is the permanent value that is left over after you've done everything? It's the question that you have to ask. What is the permanent value that you are leaving in this world? What is the permanent value that you have in this world after you've done everything? What's your mark? What is it? What's the gain and the profit under there? The, the professor, again, is challenging us down to the bare tax, the brass tax. He's pushing us down to go to the logical conclusions of your held positions. Lisa and I talk about this all the time. That's something that I really try to do is to think through, okay, if I go do this, which seems really good to go do, where's that going to end up? Where is it going to take you? I try to talk to my sons that way of, boys, be careful of the decisions that you're making. Think through fully the implications of what you're doing, for it doesn't seem like much now, but it could have ramifications down the line if you go and do that. I tell them regularly, be careful of who you even get in a car with to drive around. Because guess what? If that idiot has a little bag of pot sitting in his glove box and he gets pulled over doing 50 in a 35 and the police officer looks in and goes, hmm, what's this? Guess who's getting booked? You are and you had nothing to do with it. So you better be careful of even the simplest things of who you're going to get in a car with. And you know what? When my dad used to talk to me like that, Dad, I'm just going to McDonald's. Really? Good grief. Think. Where's it going? Where are you going? Are you willing to ask those questions of yourself? Are you willing to ask the questions of what does it gain? And what he finds out is that if you are a thinker, If you are one who really does think about these things, your conclusion comes in verse 18. 
And the conclusion that you come to is this, for in much wisdom, that is, in much understanding of the logical conclusions of living this life under the sun, there is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. What he's saying is this, not too many people are willing to think through the logical implications of their held positions because if they did, it would undo them. They would be nauseated for what they would find out is that it's meaningless. And so you know what we are really good at doing? I just don't want to think about that right now. I don't want to go there. And so we just live happy little lives without thinking about profound things. We're going to start wrestling down into those profound things. And not everybody gets to that end. Not everybody gets nauseated. Not everybody gets upset. You know who doesn't get upset and who doesn't get vexed and who doesn't get all wound up? is a person who doesn't consider most things. And guess what? Most of the world doesn't consider most things. So we just go around life as it is. But the preacher, the teacher, the philosophy professor is saying to us, I want you to start thinking about those things. And he uses a word over and over again. Uh, and it's this word, this idea of under the sun. Under the sun. I've considered all of these things that are under the sun. It's used somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 times within Ecclesiastes. And what he's basically saying is this. Everything created. Everything under the sun. Take out the idea of heaven. Take out the idea of a creator God who made you in his image. Take out the idea of a gospel message where God comes and takes human form and comes and redeems this broken down creation. But you have to live your life under the sun. And when you live and consider your life under the sun, what are the conclusions that you come to? They're not good conclusions. And this is where I'm indebted to Tim Keller. Keller says what happens here is that the professor is so brilliant that the Holy Spirit working through him is so brilliant that he already anticipates the responses of those who are going to come back to him with their philosophical responses and he destroys them systematically even here in chapter 1. He says, I'm going to tell you what's the meaning of life uh, under the sun. What is it all about? And you're going to come with me with a humanistic response. You're going to come at me with a hedonistic response. Or you're going to come at me with an existential response. And you guys are going, huh? Well, we'll define those a little bit. You're going to come back and you're going to try to make some understanding of this. You're going to try to figure out what gain, what purpose in life in one of those three ways. Now, the hedonist says this. The hedonist uh, believes that there is still meaning in life. The hedonist response says, in this life make your... Oh, excuse me, I'm sorry, I was... I'm going to start with the humanist. We'll get the hedonist in a second. The humanist says there's still meaning in life. And in this life, you should do good to make your mark. That the gain that you have in this life is marked by what you gave away. How you loved others. How you cared for others. It's that desire when you die to be able to say, this person didn't live or die in vain. They lived and left their mark. They were a good daddy. They were a good mom. They were a wonderful grandparent. They were a wonderful philanthropist. They were just a nice guy. They were salt to the earth. They enjoyed life to its fullest. They left their mark. And the philosopher looks and he says in verse 11, 
There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. For basically he's saying this, if all of life is under the sun, if there's nothing more, if there's no eternity, if there's no meaning after this life, if there's nothing else, guess what you're going to find out about yourself? You're forgettable. Tell me everything you know about your great, 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 great granddaddy. You can't. Why? You don't know anything about him because he's been forgotten. You say, oh, but they're going to put a a, a monument, a a cemetery grave marker. I was up in Beaufort not too long ago at the beautiful Episcopal Church there. And there's beautiful grave markers there. And the salt air and the wind just deteriorated him. You can't read them anymore. Read an article in Southern Living a few years ago about a man who had a very creative idea because there was a construction company coming and it was going to get rid of the cemetery near his house. And he said, but can I have the gravestones? And guess what he did with all the gravestones? He made a patio out of them. (laughs) Nothing is remembered if it's only life under the sun. No one's going to remember you. No one's going to care that you were a good dad in a hundred years or in a million years because it's all going away. And the humanist is going to go, but, 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 but. And the philosopher says, if all you have is under the sun, who cares? Go love. Go give all your money away. Go do all of that. But ultimately, there is no gain in it. It's all going to fall apart in the end. It's all going to crash down. Most of you have gone and seen Le Miserable. And you've enjoyed the musical and you've enjoyed the singing. And you go and you listen to the young men who are standing up for freedom on the barricade. And you get and you go, wow, this is awesome. These young men are standing up for something. And then you hear that young man begin to sing, drink with me to days gone by. Can it be you fear to die? Will the world remember you when you fall? Can it be your life means nothing at all? Will your death be one more lie? I want to believe that this is meaningful, that I can stand up for what's right. But if this life is all there is, it means nothing. It means nothing. You go... But we should take care of the environment. We, we should be really concerned about thermonuclear uh, holocaust. We should, we should just deal with the proliferation of nuclear weapons around the world. We need to be un- in, in, about these things. Why? If all there is, is this life, what does it matter? No, but you see, if we don't do something about this warming of the earth, then the earth is going to crash down and implode on itself in a few thousand years. Okay. Go work all you want and extend it by what? Another thousand? Two? A million years? The logical conclusion to that is, so what? It's still going to end It'd be like being on a ship, I like this illustration, and the ship is going down, and you're taking on water, and all of a sudden the captain comes running out and goes, I need all able-bodied men to come to the boiler room because the boiler is about to explode, and if the boiler explodes, we're going to go down faster. 
Who cares if the boiler explodes? I gained five more minutes on a sinking ship. That's what the preacher is challenging us to do. He's going to the humanist. He's saying, so what? If all this life is all you've got, be as nice as you want, but there's no mark that you will leave in this world. Kind of depressing, isn't it? It's forcing you to massive conclusions and questions that you have to ask. But then he thinks and considers, oh, but there's probably a hedonistic question as well. Now, hedonism is the view uh, sort of of eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow that we're going to die. That's more of the Epicurean thought. But it's this, this thought of saying, just enjoy this life. And it doesn't mean going to the extremes. But it means enjoy looking out over the ocean. Enjoy it. Now, a hedonist has at his heart... Still, and I'm using big words with you, and I know. Um, go look them up later. Will and I, uh, Will read the book, and I'm reading the book now just about uh, theology uh, and philosophy. And it really helps us understand these things. The hedonist is really, there's a word I want you to hear. It's called nihilism, N-I-H-I-L-I-S-M, nihilism, which means nothingness. A hedonist believes what the preacher is saying, that there's no meaning under the sun. But he's going to enjoy what he can in the meantime. A hedonist says, I don't want to consider the bigger questions. I don't want to consider eternity. I don't want to consider annihilationism. I don't want to consider all of these big thoughts. I just want to go and enjoy my life a little bit now. It sounds an awful lot like an ostrich with a lion coming. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to think about it. Don't force me to think about it. If I just don't think about it, then it won't be there. And I can just enjoy my life for now. You know, we look and we consider these things. And the, the question comes back in verse 8 and 12 through 16. The preacher answers this. But the hedonist goes, yes, but the meaning of life is just to enjoy it, just to draw some, some enjoyment out of it. In verse 8, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, picking up in 13. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out my, by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun and everything. And behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to my heart, I've inquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. What the nihilist and the hedonist finds out is that all of life is just an accident. You realize that if you take your logical conclusions down and you believe that we were just some random molecules that accidentally bumped into something and you came together, what a cruel fate that in that collision and that accident and that now creation of this meaningless night life, you have a consciousness of knowing that it's meaningless. And so you live your life realizing that you have no meaning in life and you have no meaning in death. 
but you don't want to deal with that, so you just bury your head and you enjoy what you can. If I just have a little bit more sex, if I just smoke a little more pot, if I just gain a little more wealth in this world, if I have a little more prestige, if I just do this, if I just do this, then I can enjoy because I sure don't want to lift my head and realize that life under the sun has absolutely no meaning. I'm just an accident. No one wants to think about that, do they? That's fun. Woohoo! Hey, fellas, come over to my house later tonight. We're going to have a drink, smoke a cigar, and talk about our nothingness. We're going to con- contemplate the meaning that we are nothing in this world. You know how many takers I would have? Zero. But if I said, fellas, come over to my house. We're going to have a fire and have a beverage and smoke a cigar and enjoy talking about the pleasures of this life. Guess what? All you guys be going, now, how, can you call me in a pass? You see, the hedonist says what we really are, as one um, philosopher put it, we are essentially nothing more than grown-up germs. And if that is true, then the hedonist cannot allow himself to think about those things. He can't. He can't. You can't. Some of you can't. That's where some of you are. And you don't, you don't like me messing today, and you may not come back next week. But I hope that these words will ring in your ears of at least consider why you won't come back. Am I speaking truth or am I lying to you? we got to hurry up. So, what you are really doing is you're forcibly keeping yourself from thinking about these things. And you're just going to try to enjoy life and enjoy beauty. But the problem is, if it's all a mistake, who gets to decide what's beautiful? Who gets to set the standard? Does music really move your heart? Or is it just some sort of electrical movement that happened in your brain and it really isn't beautiful? You just go, or love. Love is just a silly kind of connected emotional thing that happens in the synapse of your mind. How do you really enjoy anything if you ask profound questions? under the sun. And the last thing that we'll talk about very briefly and then come to our conclusion is the, the preacher, the philosopher, says, now, you humanists, I've destroyed your argument if all you have is under the sun. Hedonist, I've destroyed your argument if all you have is life under the sun, for it has no meaning. And now you, you existentialist, that, that person who basically says this, and, and it came from, from Sartre and Camus and, and Nietzsche and those who were back in, in, in uh, the last centuries, and came and basically what they were saying is, we believe that life has absolutely no meaning. We agree that existence has absolutely no meaning, but we are going to still live a meaningful life anyway. We're going to live nobly. We're going to live with character. We're going to live with morality. We're going to suck the marrow out of life. We're going to do these things even though we know that life has no meaning. And that sounds incredibly noble, doesn't it? But what meaning is there in that? If you've seen The Man of La Macha, you know that the play is a story of the man who looks around and he wants to believe in knights. He wants to believe in castles and nobility and in chivalry. And guess what he finds? None. And so guess what he does? He admits there are none to be found, but I'm going to live as if there are some. And the people all around the man of La Macha look at him and they ask the question, is this dude insane? 
Is this guy crazy? And the answer is, yes, he is. It is insanity to say that life has no meaning but to pretend that it does. How do you get to determine what nobility is? How do you get to determine what morals are? How do you get to determine any of those things? Nietzsche, in the last 10 years of his life, as he slipped uh, into insanity, believed that he was Jesus Christ. Where did his philosophy take him? All of that. They're very profound questions. So, where's the answer? It's here. And the answer doesn't come in Ecclesiastes. The answer is actually given to you in John chapter 1. And it's framed, I found this fascinating, I've never seen this before, but the connection between Ecclesiastes and John, it's framed this way. In the beginning, it's philosophical. In the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was God, and the Logos was with God. And he came and he tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory, glorious of the only begotten of the Father. And what John was saying was, all you Greek philosophers of the day, all you guys who've been running after humanism, all you guys who've been running after hedonism, all you guys who've been running after existentialism, all you guys who've been looking for the logos, which is the meaning of the it. It's the meaning of life, the the thing that makes life precious, that makes life life. You're looking for that thing which takes you to your fullest, which brings you out to your fullest. You're going... You've been searching for it, and your conclusions are that there is no Logos. But let me tell you, you want to find meaning for your life? Come to the Logos. It's not a theory. It's not a philosophy. It's a person who came to you. And when he takes up residence in you, your life and every aspect and dynamic of it has meaning. Do you realize that? Because the Logos comes in and takes residence in your life, then students, guess what? Your studies have meaning. Do you want to know why biology should be fascinating to you and you should give yourself over to it? Is it just to get a good grade, to get into a good university? Or is it because you realize that biology and the study of it is this incredible picture of this creative God who came and put all of these things together and he works it out in that way. And mathematics and and all of those things and of human history. History is no longer just history, but it is God's story throughout all of mankind. And you begin to be fascinated by it. And the person who goes and cares for their children and the person who vacuums their home, all of a sudden those things have meaning. Why? Because the Logos has given them meaning. Otherwise, it's just life under the sun with no meaning. All of you who have concluded and placed your faith in Christ, in that Logos, are invited to this table. This table, and the meaning of it, is the defining element of life. Christ who makes it meaningful. He makes everything meaningful. Or else, as one person put it, everything is nothing. It's all for naught. Many of you do very well. But who cares if it's all going to go away? Many of you have worked hard at things. But who cares if it just all goes away? 
in a year or in a million years. But the beauty of this table and what it represents, and we're going we're gonna to bring it down today, and, and musicians, again, I'm doing it to you. We'll, we'll pick those things up. But we're going to come here now. And we're going to say here, God, because of what you've done, you give my life meaning. And if you're here today and you're still searching for that, now is the moment for you to be able to say, God, give my life meaning. Would your son Christ come and take up residence in me and make my life of eternal significance? Lisa and I used to so naively think that the goal of parenting uh, was, was where we used compliance. You know what gives parenting meaning? It's being entrusted with three image bearers of God and having the profound gift of stewarding their lives and hopefully walking in front of them in such a way that they would see Christ and that in a billion years we could hang out in eternity and go, you know, it had meaning. It had significance in our family. This gives meaning to life. So let's come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Elders, I'll invite you to come up while I pray. Father, wow, these aren't light things that we talk about today, but they are profound. For we talk about life. Either life under the sun is true or it's not true. Either this is all there is or there's more to be found in Christ himself. And Father, I'm thankful that the truth is that there's more to be found in Christ himself. So would you come now and bless this feast. Bless our gathering together. This we pray in your son's name. Amen.